Hello, and welcome to the newest edition of the Next Collaboration podcast. My name is Christina Fust, and I'm a Next Committee member and intensivist from Munich, Germany. Today, I have the pleasure to talk with Professor Christian Jung about the important topic of frailty and its impact on survival and outcomes. We will explore the recently published COVID study, the impact of frailty on survival in elderly intensive care patients with COVID-19. Professor Jung is the head of the Coronary Heart Disease and Critical Care Division at the University Hospital of Düsseldorf, Germany. After his residency and board certification in cardiology and internal medicine, his main focus and interest became intensive care medicine and the influence of frailty on outcome. He is the principal investigator of the VIP studies, for which he also received the ESICM Research Award in 2017. Welcome, Professor Jung. Welcome, Christian. Thank you very much, Christina, and thank you for the invitation uh, to be here. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Um, so, um, it has been repeatedly reported in the press that elderly patients in particular are at high risk for a severe cause of COVID-19 and die in the ICU. You could demonstrate that frailty is superior assessing ICU patients with or without COVID compared to age alone. Could you tell us a little bit about the concept of frailty and the reason for this result? So frailty stands for um, the biological age of the patients. And it's important to emphasize that the concept of frailty is, um, uh, is uh, especially relevant for old patients. And it is uh, validated for old patients above the age of 65. And mm -hmm. uh, at this age group, um, we all know that there's a big difference between um, patients. So their uh, biological age can be younger or older. And uh, we are focusing on that topic with the VIP group and stand for that as a group. And I'm just having the pleasure today being here on behalf of this uh, VIP group. VIP stands for Very Old Intensive Care Patient. And we are studying that for some time and discovered and described that uh, on the ICU in old patients, it is, uh, has a very good dimension um, reflecting uh, also the outcome and the prognosis of the patients. And in the COVID study, we were also able to demonstrate in COVID-19 patients that it is, has really relevance for outcome. And especially, and now to answer also your question, if patients are frail, their uh, age is very, uh, has a very low importance for uh, outcome. Uh, however, it is of course in fit patients relevant, but uh, if a patient is frail, the age uh, doesn't say uh, any much in addition to that. Okay, so if I am on my ICU, how do I assess frailty in a new patient? Um, it's important uh, on the ICU that uh, all the team members uh, use the same tools. So there are different ways for uh, the assessment of frailty. Um, so it's important that uh, within your team, you're able to communicate about that and that you're able to uh, rate what uh, and uh, to understand what the others uh, 
rated. So within our research group, we assess frailty using the clinical frailty scale, which is a scale from one to nine. And uh, it has been published already uh, some years ago. Um, it is one of the instruments only, but it is uh, easy uh, to learn and easy to assess. And we were also able to demonstrate in the past that the inter-rater variability is, is pretty good. So this scale is, uh, is, is a scale from one to nine. Um, and it's, it's one of the instruments that can be used. And actually, we, are, uh, we prefer to, to use that also in, on our ICU, but also in our clinical studies. And um, if you use this tool, the cl clinical frailty scale, how do you define frail and non-frail? Is there a cutoff value? Yeah, actually, this is uh, something that is uh, currently pretty much discussed, but uh, we stick also in the studies currently to the uh, current definitions, which defines a fit patient uh, on a, a clinical frailty scale from one to three. Four is defined as being vulnerable, and five and above is considered to be a frail patients, according to CFS. Oh, yeah, great that you already mentioned the category vulnerable, which was included just in the COVID study. Am I right? I think compared to the former VIP trials, you just used two categories. In the uh, actually, we we collected also. You referred to earlier studies, which yeah. are the VIP one and the VIP two studies yes. that uh, that really um, confirmed the relevance of frailty by also by using the CFS, and um, it has been collected there, and it is also available as a separate category. But it was not so much focused on uh, on CFS four. I agree. However, it's, it's not the first time using it, but it's the first time uh, have, certainly showing that there's a, this as a borderline category, mm -hmm. which is also maybe reflected by the fact that um, the numbers or the uh, number of frail patients was lower in the in in the uh, COVID study, so maybe that uh, moved more to a center stage. Ah, I understand because um, we if you compare the results, the rate of frail patients was much lower compared to former trials. So this might be one explanation why. Um, <coughs> yes. Uh, I mean, it's important to understand for uh, in order to put the studies in a line um, and uh, to put this in, into a continuation of uh, stories. It's important to say that our VIP group originally focused on patients being uh, 80 years and older. However, we changed that during the setup of the uh, of the uh, COVID study to above the age of 70. Because initially we we were not so sure how many patients above the age of eighty we were able to collect, so we changed that um, to a younger age threshold. And this is also, of course, heavily connected then to the fact that the the number of frail patients is lower uh, for patients being between seventy and eighty. This is the one thing, and the other thing is uh, what you 
briefly touched, I think, is that of course, um, um, in the heavy surges of the pandemic, it might have has happened. We didn't collect the data about it, but that uh, severe, frail patients might have not entered the ICU. Ah, so you you see uh, you you um, uh, speaking about a triage before admission to hospital, or maybe yes. a triage whether you are admitted to to ICU surge capacity beds. Correct. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, but this is just a, um, a speculation. We, so since we did not collect data about it, it is uh, something that might have has happened while we are thinking uh, about the results. Uh, but the main driver was the younger age, but there might be uh, additional factors that might have influenced it. Oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, I, I switched to the setup of the study because you already touched that topic. You have so many centers uh, that you could include early in March 2020 with a high burden of um, COVID-19. So how could you set up the, the, the study so quickly with so many centers? Yeah, actually, this was uh, something that we are very happy happy about that, and uh, also something uh, fr from retrospect uh, that we don't have a good explanation why this <laughs> has uh, been done so successfully. Uh, the the key point here is that uh, since we already discussed about the previous studies, we had a network of uh, hospitals and we have a network of uh, country coordinators. We also have a key core group uh, coordinating the studies, especially Hans Flatten from Norway and Bertrand Guidet and Dylan Dilang. Uh, just to mention three of them, there are more. And like, uh, uh, for example, Otto Wojciech uh, Schlick from, uh, from Poland. Uh, so we have a lot of uh, dedicated people uh, for the topic and uh, we decided early okay we will uh, we will launch such a study and with the team spent some night shifts and then <laughs> we were ready to uh, launch that study early by using the network and asking uh, centers to participate and finally um, uh, we were then uh, successful in in recruiting close to 4,000 patients um, and uh, the main paper about frailty was uh, about 1,400 patients already between March uh, and uh, and May. So that is, uh, yeah, that was a, a quick journey. Now these are impressive numbers. So congratulations once again for this success, because now we are able to also investigate differences between the participating countries. You already mentioned that patients from Norway, from Poland, um, also from, from uh, countries with a high burden initially, like France and Italy, included patients. So my question is, can you talk about the results of differences between the participating countries? Were there any surprises, anything we learned? Uh, certainly, yes. So uh, everybody, since I haven't mentioned it, is of course cordially invited to go to our website, uh, vipstudy.org, and we are collecting the papers uh, there. And uh, 
so from the VIP studies, I think there are already like more than 50 manuscripts published and now 15 from the COVID study. And you can also uh, study the differences between countries. So maybe mentioning two aspects. Uh, one is, and this is also of really high importance in, in old patients, is uh, the uh, is treatment limitations. And we have, uh, it's not a surprise, but it's a confirmation of what we have uh, discussed and observed also in previous studies. So there's uh, only focusing on Europe, a large gradient from north uh, to, uh, to south. And for example, in, uh, in a study that uh, only focusing on European patients of more than 3000 uh, patients, there was um, in uh, Northern Europe, uh, occurrence of treatment limitations in 48% of the cases. And it was in Central Europe, 39, and in Southern Europe, 24% of the patients. So in Northern Europe, the occurrence of treatment limitations is, uh, uh, is double as compared to Southern Europe. And you can, you're invited to also to, to have a look into that paper. I think it's a very impressive difference. And also yes. to mention another difference is that the use of non-invasive ventilation is, uh, shows a very, very large difference between uh, countries, which, and this, uh, to answer also that question to you, this was a surprise to me. And um, was the rate of non-invasive ventilation higher in the northern countries or in the southern countries? Uh, there's not uh, so much geographically uh, difference um, uh, regarding uh, the uh, use of non-invasive ventilation. That is, uh, that is not a geographic uh, distribution. It is more a distribution uh, that I cannot allocate a specific uh, cluster to. But uh, at least there are, seem to be um, interpretations of uh, circumstances, also maybe traditions or uh, country differences, uh, culture regarding the, uh, the use of ventilation and so on. So I can I cannot say that it is a geographic uh, distribution, but it is uh, certainly a huge dis uh, difference between countries. And if you compare the results from the COVID study to the VIP trials, do you think that therapy limitation in general occurred faster due to the pandemic or uh, in a different manner? That's an interesting question that we have not looked into specifically whether it took place more quick. Um, that is something we, we could uh, look into. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, I can maybe uh, add another aspect here, what we observed and described also is that the frequency of treatment limitations is uh, also dependent on the seven-day incidence of the country, meaning if the pressure, the local pressure within the country rises, the frequency of treatment limitation increases. So okay. it, it seems that there's an association between those two factors that you also have had in mind asking this question. So this, uh, there, there seem to be 
or there is a, an influence of the pandemic circumstances also on how we apply treatment limitations in our patients. Mm -hmm. So, so from from my personal um, point of view, working on the COVID ICU, this is exactly what you mentioned. And above that, we had the impression that also patients were dealing with therapy limitation, withholding, withdrawing therapy in a different manner than compared to other diseases. So probably there was a lot of uh, attention in the media and we had a lot of um, patients with therapy withholding wishes of the family or themselves. I don't know if this is something you could show within the COVID results, but also the patients themselves um, talked about therapy limitation way more often than before the pandemic, at least from my personal point of view. Yeah, I can, I can agree to that. And I think it's a, it's a, a smart uh, consideration that you, uh, that you describe. However, uh, uh, I can, we cannot prove that with data since we did not yeah. collect data on that. Um, but uh, from my personal observation, uh, I, I can certainly agree to what you observed. So do you think that frailty can be used as a risk stratification tool when patients are admitted to the ICU? Because um, if I remember, there used to be some guidelines from the UK very early on that um, somehow planned to use frailty as a risk stratification tool and they were heavily criticized. So do you think we could we could take these results for risk stratification? Um, yes, but the, in, in your question from my point of view, there are two different aspects. One is that uh, can frailty be used as a risk stratification tool? Um, I can answer that it should be used in old mm -hmm. uh, patients. And it's also important, uh, since you refer to different guidelines, that also these guidelines have been uh, changed and commented on since initially in the pandemic, it was uh, recommended to use it for adult patients above the age of 18. And this has been then later changed to the age of 65. And this is mm -hmm. something that is really important, that it is only validated in old patients. So it, sh it, it should be used. However, it's not only one, it is only one factor. And uh, frailty and the assessment of frailty, if a patient comes to you on your ICU, can be used, but it is only one factor. And uh, uh, giving absolute thresholds when not to treat the patient in a guideline about frailty is something that I wouldn't agree on, um, but it is one factor that should be used for uh, making your treatment plan, to discuss with the patient, to discuss with the family, to possibly plan a, a time-limited trial uh, and, and all uh, this uh, for treatment limitations and for, for every, every aspect of your treatment plan. So, um, yeah, what do you think about these uh, two aspects of your question? Yeah, I think this is a, this is a great summary. So we, we should get used to use frailty as a risk stratification tool as, as one of several others. And we should get used to asking these questions 
also before elective surgery of older patients. And this is something that should be routine uh, apart from the pandemic. Um, so I, I agree with you that this is really important and we should consider the concept of frailty with so many older patients that are coming to our hospitals, at least in Germany. But I also agree with you that we shouldn't use it as a risk stratification tool, at least not a defined threshold. But to keep it in mind, if you talk to the family, if you have ICU trials, as you mentioned, and to also have some sort of outcome expectation and to yeah. to to be able to um, to guide the family if a patient can be discharged home or to a nursing home and maybe use this as a as a tool to talk to the patient and to the family so so yes. we can see that there are still many questions that should be answered or may be answered in the in the future so for the covid group i think there are a lot of there are a lot of future targets and this would be my last question to wrap up. So what are your future plans and what are the next ideas of the COVID group? I think we can expect more, right, from the COVID group. Yeah, certainly, yes. So we are uh, still the same enthusiastic group and we have even grown uh, since that with a lot of centers that are really willing to also study things that are independent from the pharmaceutical industry and so on. And it's important to say that we don't have this large budget, but still we are really, really enthusiastic to plan the next studies. You can also register for those uh, on our website. So currently we are uh, planning the VIP3 and the VIP4 studies. Uh, VIP3 um, will focus on family meetings and um, also the discussion and the treatment planning of old patients. And VIP4 will focus on uh, long-term outcome, also cardiovascular and uh, other complications on the ICU, and especially also the comparison of uh, patients between the age of 65 and 80 and above 80 and uh, certain and distinct differences. So both studies are in preparation, and we are, of course, happy to welcome uh, new centers, new members, and new interested uh, colleagues. Well, these are great aspects, and I uh, I think this will be very interesting. So the VIP three and four trial, and I think you are currently also collecting further data for COVID patients. Though so you yeah. are collecting for the next waves, I think. Correct. Right. So, uh, so we uh, we closed the database for uh, the first aspect uh, in December twenty one, uh, having uh, four thousand patients, and in twenty twenty two we changed the protocol uh, according to um, what we learned uh, in the pandemic, and the recruitment is now open in the extension period. And uh, we collect data also on vaccination studies and their influence specific topics of corticosteroid uh, therapy um, and uh, uh, more. So uh, this is uh, still open and we are recruiting and already recruited uh, more than 400 patients in 2022, which is good uh, since we all are 
so happy right now that the number of patients is not that high on our ICUs, yeah. but still we think we are collecting important data to learn what is important for our uh, patients at the moment. And of course, everybody is welcome to join that. Uh, so 400 is good, but more is always possible. Yeah, this is great. So we can also invite the next community to be a part of the VIP or the COVID trials. So as you already mentioned, uh, they can find you uh, in the internet uh, on uh, www.vip.org. And um, also for the COVID study, I think you're easy to find. And I think they can also contact you or their national coordinators if they uh, want to become a participating center. And then I That's hope- That's correct. That so vipstudy.org and there's a list of the country coordinators. So we have a, a coordinator for each country. And uh, yeah, so are you happy to contact them and we have a number of next uh, members that are very successful in uh, uh, contributing. For example, Christina Yu. Just <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. We were a center from the very beginning, and um, these are great projects. So yes, we can. Uh, I can also cordially invite all of my next colleagues to to join the project. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Great, Christian. It was my pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much and uh, goodbye. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Goodbye.